Hello, everyone. This is Jason Jacobs. And I'm Cody Sims. And welcome to My Climate Journey. This show is a growing body of knowledge focused on climate change and potential solutions. In this podcast, we traverse disciplines, industries, and opinions to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and all the ways people like you and I can help. We appreciate you tuning in, sharing this episode, and if you feel like it, leaving us a review to help more people find out about us so they can figure out where they fit in addressing the problem of climate change. Today's guest is Harry Tannenbaum, co-founder and president at Mill, which develops a household bin that collects uneaten food, shrinks and de-stinks it, and keeps it in the food system and out of landfills and waste systems, where it otherwise would become a significant source of emissions. Mill recently exited Stealth and launched their product and consumer membership offering. We're proud to be multi-time backers of Mill through our MCJ Collective Venture Funds, alongside other leading climate tech funds, such as Breakthrough Energy Ventures, Lower Carbon Capital, Prelude Ventures, Energy Impact Partners, and John Doerr. Harry and I go deep on the food waste problem and how he became motivated to work on it. We talk about what makes a great consumer product and how he and his co-founder, Matt Rogers, who co-founded Nest, learned valuable lessons together at Nest that they're applying at Mill. We talk all about the Mill product and the logistics framework that the company is developing, and we talk about the intersection of consumer behavior change and systems change and the network effect that Mill hopes to create between the two. We also talk about the strategy of building a company in stealth, as Mill was throughout the product development process, and the pros and cons therein. This is an in-depth conversation, and Harry and I didn't leave many stones unturned. I hope you enjoy it. Harry, welcome to the show. Hey, it's great to be here. So, Harry, I have noticed in reviewing now thousands of MCJ members that join our member community, a very large portion of people when they're when they are trying to lean into how they can work on climate identify food waste as one of the areas that they want to lean into it's like the it's it's like the the initial entry point for a lot of people into thinking about how they can work on climate maybe it's because it feels very personal to them i i don't know um but let's start there what is the food waste problem it's a it's a great question. I mean, I'm I'm on the same page with a lot of folks there. I think one way to look at it is just the sheer volume of food we grow that doesn't get eaten and the impact of agriculture on the planet. So, let's we can talk about some high-level numbers. Um, you know, emissions of agriculture as a whole about 25% of our emissions. And then a bonkers thing is that we throw away about 40% of the food we grow. So emissions for food waste are between 8 to 10%, which when you look at it as a country would be like the third largest country on the planet. And do you know roughly how much of that is household food waste and how much is, you know, grocery store or supply chain logistics waste? So in the U.S., first of all, the thing that actually got me going is I, I just started getting obsessed with waste in the pandemic and you you know you don't have a lot going on so you go to the EPA website and download a PDF and you look at the what makes up the landfill and food is the single largest inhabitant of the landfill at 24%. That's mind blowing. Wow. And then when you look at where that food comes from, I actually think first of all my hypothesis would have been food isn't the largest thing in the landfill and then i would have guessed okay it probably comes from like farms grocery stores etc but actually households are the single largest slice there i think the number is about 43% of the food waste that is produced comes from the residential sector effectively us and when you take a step back <laughs> it kind of makes sense because every other step of the chain is profit motivated not to waste food. I mean, I think we are theoretically as well. But yeah, it's it's about 40%. You know, Refed, which is just an amazing organization that um, builds awareness about food waste and loss. There's a quote from Dana Gunders, the director there, that was something like, one way to visualize it is we go to the grocery store and we buy five bags of food and we just leave two of them in the parking lot. They don't even get in the back of our car. 
Man, that is a depressing stat to think about. But, you know, it it, it doesn't feel super untrue to me in my own behavior, unfortunately. Um, you know, we all have the best of intentions, but, you know, one evening we get busy or this, that and the other. And next thing you know, that broccoli is probably not something you want to eat anymore. Yeah, it's like 500 to 600 pounds per household per year in the U.S., which actually works out to about two grand a year. So it's real money. It's a real amount of material. And um, yeah, I think the thing that got me really fired up, maybe the thing that got me flared up um, is that, you know, when, when the food ends up in the landfill, it degrades anaerobically. There's no oxygen in the landfill and you get methane, which is public enemy number one. And order of magnitude, if ag is 25% of emissions, food waste and loss is 8 to 10% of emissions. Those methane emissions from landfills are like 2% of emissions. Let's talk about sort of the life cycle of this food waste. So I would assume, based on the numbers you just threw out, the bulk of it just ends up in the garbage, right? People just throwing it in the trash. Some of it goes down the garbage disposal and goes to a different sort of waste pathway, uh, which also has an, 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 an emittive component that maybe you can talk about. And then some very, very, very tiny, 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 small percentage of it is home composted. Um, that, that's my guess. Um, is, that, is that accurate? That is accurate. I think if we were to make um, if we were to make sort of three big buckets out of it, you know, we could look at sort of circular solutions, which would include composting into animal feed where the food is reintroduced into the food system. And then uh, linear outputs, uh, which could be incineration, landfilling, and then, you know, wastewater treatment as a pathway. Maybe it's a little bit between the two. It could go to anaerobic digestion and get used to create energy. But I think when we zoom out, if you think about food, there's sort of two really amazing things about three amazing things about food. The first being it's delicious. But the, the second two components being that it's energy rich and nutrient rich. So when we're thinking about where the food goes, we can think about different pathways. Uh, are they capturing energy? Are they capturing nutrients? Are they capturing both energy and nutrients? And, you know, I don't have the EPA numbers up right in front of me, but I think the last EPA fact sheet had the percentage of food that was composted in the U.S. that wasn't eaten at around 6%. Uh, and then the sort of landfill. It's actually more than I thought. Uh, interesting. It's not that it's, it's yeah. not nothing, you know, backyard composting is a thing. Um, municipal composting is also a thing that occurs, but in not that many households, something like only there's another great publication. This is where you have a bin outside. You're able to put your food waste in a bin and it gets picked up on the yeah. road, you know, along with your garbage and your recycling. Yeah. And some MCJ listeners probably have that. And I will say you are in the lucky 5% of Americans that have access to a program like that. You know, curbside collection for food scraps is, there are lots of municipalities that are working to get there, but it is not hyper prevalent. And then just to, to sort of chunk out the numbers a little bit, you know, I think about 60 to 70% of the food that doesn't get eaten, heads to landfill, I think around 10 to 15% gets incinerated. And then some does go down the drain. And you're, you're sort of hitching a free ride on in a water pipe, but generally that material needs to get raked out of a wastewater treatment system. And that's pretty energy intensive as a primary treatment. And then it depends what the secondary treatment is, whether that material is hauled to a landfill or goes to an inner digester or could be composted. And by the nature of what goes down the pipes, it's being combined with all a bunch of other forms of solid waste. It's not just food Correct. at that point, clearly. Correct. Okay. And so then, you know, that, that may turn into an anaerobic digester and be uh, harnessed for energy, um, or it may uh, it may get landfilled, or it may get incinerated itself. There are multiple end-of-life pathways on the sort of garbage disposal, uh, uh, sort of sewage side of things. And cities don't love it either. It's expensive for them to deal with it. In most of these downstream organizations that are managing this are municipal run at this point. Obviously, wastewater is primarily municipal run. Landfills are a mix of, of private or municipal, depending on the, the locale, I'm, I'm guessing. And composting, you know, also somewhat a mix. Is that a, is that a correct way to think about it? Every, every city is a little bit different? Yeah. Generally, when we think about how materials are managed, it's a city by city 
stack effectively. And it can be really different by city. Um, and everybody has sort of their own local approach to it. There are state level regulations that drive targets for compliance, et cetera, et cetera. But generally, it's up to the city to figure itself out there, which is interesting. And how did you decide to work on this problem? How did, how did you know, we haven't talked about your co-founder, Matt. How did you and, and Matt Rogers meet? Um, how did you, well, you met at Nest, obviously, but, you know, maybe, maybe take us into the Wayback Machine uh, on your journey, how, you know, you all collaborated and how ultimately you ended up uh, deciding to build Mill. I mean, I can go all the way back. Do we want to, you know? Do it. Yeah, let's okay. do it. Yeah, so I, you know, I was born May 28th. I'm a Gemini. Um, you know, fast forward some number of years. You know, I, I went to college at UCLA. I studied economics and statistics. And after school, um, or, you know, or actually in my senior year, I got, I got a job offer to move to New York to be an investment banker. And uh, you know, I, I was actually kind of entranced by that because it just seemed like, oh, cool. I've never lived in New York and maybe there's a lot of cool stuff I can do and learn. And I got to tell you, I got to the investment bank and I was not inspired by the gig. I was fortunate to have made some connections with folks that were at Nest. And I effectively, you know, got into some conversations with, with people at Nest and they needed a numbers person. And I was, you know, I was so ready to go. And I remember I had my first conversation with folks at Nest and they said, oh my God, this sounds great. We need someone like you. You should, you should come join. And, and I said, oh, I, you know, I was kind of, you know, right out the gate. I was like, great. I think this is a done deal. I think that was October, November, December, January. I'm sort of, you know, talking to recruiting, no response, no response. And I'm thinking like, oh my God, this company's so cool and it's doing something for the planet. And it was still still a startup private company at this point, right? It was a private company, and I'll never know if this was the case, but it did occur to me, like, maybe they're too cheap to fly me out for an interview. So, 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 I, so I wrote them. I said, hey, I'm going to be in the Bay Area. Can I come by? And they said, sure, come in. So I booked flights. You know, my family's in San Francisco. I flew out. Flew out to the Bay Area and interviewed, and I joined. I joined Nest in April 2012, and no, I was really attracted to the company because it seemed like a super motivated team that was building this thermostat, and the core bit of that was this is something people want that simplifies your life, that's rationalizable. It was kind of eye watering at the time that it was a $250 thermostat when the average ASP of a thermostat was. $27. And I know these numbers, you know, these have been beaten into my head over a long time. But it was this thing that was just an amazing product that people wanted that actually made it easy to save money and made it easy to do the right thing for the planet. So I was really attracted to that. And I, I joined Nest and I was sort of the numbers person at the company. And over the years, I did a bunch of different jobs, effectively figuring out how to help drive the business and drive decision-making and sort of booting up organizations, giving away those Legos. So over time, it was analytics, and then it was e-commerce and digital marketing and all, all sorts of different things. And along the way, I met my now co-founder, Matt, who is one of the founders at Nest, who's just this amazing guy. He's kind of like a human energizer bunny of optimism and thoughtfulness. And there aren't that many people on the planet that have shipped as much first-gen hardware as he has, as, as like a side project that they, hey, well, okay, we'll throw this guy on this, you know, shipped a bunch of versions of the iPhone and iPad and then everything we did at Nest. And we can talk about it later, but first generation hardware is really different than subsequent generation. You're really bringing something to existence that there may be types of it in the world, but it's a big lift to go from zero to one. And we sold Nest to Google in 2014. You know, along the way, like lots of thermostats made their way into people's households. I think the last number was that, I think this is a little outdated, that we saved something like 100 billion kilowatt hours of electricity, which is cool um, by making it easy for people to do the right thing. And, you know, as the company scaled up and grew, we were then a business unit inside Google and the portfolio grew. It's funny, I kind of woke up one day and I just realized I wasn't 
spending as much of my time on climate related stuff. That hadn't been a motivator for you, but you, you sort of internalized it uh, while you were at Nest as something that mattered, it sounds like. It was in there. But I think if you had asked me in the early days of Nest, I would have said, yeah, yeah, I like that that we're doing something for the planet. That was a draw for me. But if you had asked me, I would have said no. But, you know, but the thing that really drives me is I get to work with great people every day and we get to work on a really interesting problem. And I try, you know, try my best to do excellent work to build something new. And then... Yeah, later on, when the climate-related mix of my work or the missional-related mix of my work had kind of gotten turned down, I think in retrospect, the missional bit was a bigger piece of it than I had previously thought. I think I was more mission-driven than excellence-driven than I thought. So this is now, we're now in 2020, and I'm talking to my now fiance, Rachel, about this. And she's like, you should quit. You know, get back to doing something you, you know, love. And this is, Rachel's much smarter than I am. So I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm you know, she's the best. She tells me to quit. She, you know, we can take some more risk on. So I left Google and then the next week, the pandemic started. So I got the risk. And that was when I sort of started thinking about waste. And, you know, it's weird. We're just kind of trained to ignore waste. Like, I, I don't know about you, but, you know, you just sort of accept that it's inevitable, I think. That, hey, this is just something that's going to come into existence by virtue of our existence. And, and, you know, we just, it, it just kind of goes away. And it's totally not natural, <laughs> right? Like, I mean. Yeah. These are two breaking news items for me. One, there's no waste in nature. That was, you know, that was like kind of a, a mind bender for me, that it's a human invention. And two, that there is nowhere called away. Like this material just doesn't disappear. And then I just started seeing it everywhere. I mean, just to rewind, isn't it weird that we make like our own weight in food waste every year? <laughs> just like a weird, you know, if you have an airplane full of people, like you could just swap them out for an airplane full of food that they don't eat every year. And I, anyway, it, I think it. So I started just seeing it everywhere. And I started reading. And this is, harks back to what we were talking about earlier. You know, you download the PDF. Okay, what's the biggest thing in the landfill? That seems like a good thing to go after. Food. Okay, that's crazy. Wait, this is way worse than I would have thought from a climate perspective, but also just like a food system perspective. We're talking water usage, soil health, fertilizer use, you know, land use. All of it's tied in. And then when you think about it, it kind of feels like the dumbest climate problem out there. Because, like, we don't need to invent nuclear fusion. We just need to stop throwing food in the trash can. And I would say the little... I mean, nu nuclear fusion would be nice. Nuclear... <laughs> don't get me wrong. Hey, I, I'm a big fan, I think. You know, not an expert, but I know there are magnets involved. And I think that, you know, 2040, 2050, whenever that comes, that's going to be awesome. But we kind of got to make sure we don't cook ourselves on the way there. And this just felt like a tractable problem. So, so you got motivated by the problem. You, you know, you went back and reconnected with Matt, I presume. And how, how did, what was the genesis of th the actual company that you're now running? So it was a collaborative thing, but the initial seed crystal of an idea that I had was related to this idea that waste is all about mixing. You know, if we have apples and aluminum separately, this is not waste. These are resources. We can make more apples out of the apples, or we can feed the apples to something. We can make more aluminum out of the aluminum. They're resources. But when they get mixed together, and if you have trouble unmixing them, now you have waste. So the little seed crystal of the idea is, well, what if we could like distribute infrastructure to prevent things from getting mixed together? 
And what if that infrastructure could do some processing inside the home or inside a business? You know, could that unlock a different pathway? And then I was like, shoot, I'm not a hardware person. (laughs) This sounds like a hardware company, which I think is probably a theme you see on, on this podcast where, you know, to solve climate change and to build new systems, it's got to be atoms, not just electrons. Yeah, I was just talking to uh, uh, someone who's, you know, getting involved in climate investing. And what he, that person was asking me, you know, how, how much of your investments are hardware? And I said, well, it's about half at MCJ Collective, but it's not all, I mean, mill is to some extent, you know, an actual like widget that gets sold somewhere, you know, a thing that gets built and sold. Um, Though I know we'll talk about your business model because it's not exactly like that. But when you think about the broader category of moving atoms, uh, which, again, might not be a hardware product, but it it may be a hardware process. It's about half of our investments. And so it's a very real thing because those are how you solve the real problems. Right. So, like, I can engineer a spreadsheet, but I, you know, building a thing you know, is different. So I called Matt and Matt was, you know, doing a bunch of climate work, investing, philanthropic work, political work. The reason for calling is I thought there would be someone in his sort of stable of mentees that I could hook up with. And I got a text back from Matt two hours after he talked, like, hey, I talked to my wife, Swati. I think I want to come do this with you. So we were then kind of off to the races and yeah, the initial idea was, hey, can we make a make a bin that does something to food that makes it so it doesn't end up in the landfill? And that that really evolved a lot over time from that idea, and it was not from me and Matt. You know, we started building a team, and I would say um, to folks out there that are thinking about founding a company or have just founded a company, my, my greatest advice is just focus on hiring people that are smarter than you are. You know, I find it to be an incredibly effective way of driving the business forward. And, you know, we started working on approaches and, you know, an approach we landed on was that we're going to dehydrate the food. And the cool thing about dehydration with food is that food is like 80% water. So that's also just kind of interesting. When you think about all the food that's hauled to the landfill, 80% of that is water that we're hauling around in this diesel truck. So when we take the water out of food, it gets really small and it becomes non-putrescible. It was a really good Scrabble word that I've I've picked up in my journeys here. You get a lot of, you go get a lot of points when you play that one down. Yeah. Is that a nine? You only have seven tiles on the rack. Trustability is probably going to be hard, but it could be played on ability. So, you know, somebody just got something out of this, hopefully. (laughs) We're adding value. Yeah. So, so you stop putrescibility because when you get to a lower moisture content, the microbes that cause organic material to break down or, or they digest it can't operate at 12 to 13% moisture content. And this material is really small, but it is still food. Just minus the water. And then kind of the next question is like, okay, so what do we do with this stuff? So it's basically like a, a almost like a protein powder is kind of the way to think about yeah. it. Is that, is that yeah. accurate? Yeah, it's, yeah, we, yeah, we're making astronaut food, effectively. And it's protein powder. And yeah, uh, since you're asking, around 19% protein in the average mix of uneaten food from a household, which is pretty bonkers, right? Okay, so we have this, um, we call it food grounds, which kind of makes sense because it is ground food. So what do we do with the food grounds? And this is where, you know, Alyssa Pollack, who who, um, was, was the first person we hired to the team, the first and not last person, way smarter than I am, working on this with us, And Alyssa had come from Uber. She was on the team that had sort of um, incubated and grown Uber Eats within Uber. So I'm guessing some pretty heavy logistics background. Yeah. And she was like, we should take this back. You know, because what we were struggling with was that, okay, you make 600 pounds of uneaten food a year. And that is, I'm not calling it food waste. It's just uneaten food. And we turned that into 
you know, about 100 pounds of food grounds a year, you know, if we size reduce it by about 80%. So that's like a shoebox and a half a month. But not everybody has a pathway to get that into a circular loop. So Alyssa's like, why don't we take it back ourselves? And we were like, whoa, that's a big deal. And then also on the team, I think around the fifth person we hired is Dr. Jeff Hill. And, and Jeff has a PhD in composting. You know, they don't just hand those out. And he'd operated uh, composting facilities and had really gone deep on organics management. And we were thinking initially that would be a pat- pathway we could get this material to. It's, it's light, it's non-putressible, it's easy to manage. But Jeff was doing all sorts of crazy stuff. Like he was like, you know, nobody would say anything. And then Jeff would just come into Slack and be like, hey, I lit it on fire. And it burns at a higher BTU than wood pellets because it's so incredibly energy rich. Hey, I did macro and micronutrient testing. And like, this stuff is amazing. And it made sense because it was still food. And the US EPA has this hierarchy of the highest and best uses for uneaten food. And the best thing is not wasting food in the first place. So we can talk about that later because there's some parallels to nest on that. The next best thing is having a person eat it. But then anything not eaten by a person should get eaten by an animal, which kind of makes sense, right? Like it's a pretty tight loop. If you have food, can it be used as food? That's when we started thinking about this pathway that could get us to an ingredient in animal feed. And, and that didn't happen overnight. That was sort of months of thinking and trying and running into walls. But effectively, you know, then we sort of knew what we were building. We weren't just building a bin. We were building a whole new system. And there's a fair amount of talk out there about the circular economy, which is great. And there are companies that are building things that have the potential to be circular. But for us, when we looked at it, we needed to build those rails. We need to build that loop to get food from the farm to your table and then back to the farm. We're going to take a short break right now so our partner Yin can share more about the MCJ membership option. Hey folks, Ian here, a partner at MCJ Collective. Want to take a quick minute to tell you about our MCJ membership community, which was born out of a collective thirst for peer-to-peer learning and doing that goes beyond just listening to the podcast. We started in 2019 and have since then grown to 2,000 members globally. Each week, we're inspired by people who join with differing backgrounds and perspectives. And while those perspectives are different, what we all share in common is a deep curiosity to learn and bias to action around ways to accelerate solutions to climate change. Some awesome initiatives have come out of the community. A number of founding teams have met, nonprofits have been established, a bunch of hiring has been done, many early stage investments have been made, as well as ongoing events and programming like monthly women in climate meetups, idea jam sessions for early stage founders, climate book club, art workshops, and more. So whether you've been in climate for a while or just embarking on your journey, having a community to support you is important. If you want to learn more, head over to mcjcollective.com and click on the Members tab at the top. Thanks, and enjoy the rest of the show. All right, back to the show. And so do you view Mill as, I guess there are, you know, this is a putting things in buckets uh, question, but, you know, on one hand, Mill is a hardware company. On another, you know, Mill is a, I guess, reverse logistics company. And, uh, you know, on, on another, you know, Mill is, uh, you know, a consumer subscription business. And and I'm curious sort of how you've thought, I mean, those are three uh, vectors to have to optimize against. I mean, I think what we think of ourselves as internally is we're a systems change company. You know, and if we zoom way out, if we're going to decarbonize the economy, we need new systems. And if those systems are going to be adopted, they need to be more efficient than the systems that are out there. So, and, and the way we do that is actually by making an experience that is just the most kick-ass experience you can imagine. So let's go into that. We, we're, we're multiple minutes into this conversation just for folks who are casually tuning in and haven't paid attention to what you've announced and launched with Mill. Maybe describe what Mill is, what the experience is like, uh, and kind of the, the, the end-to-end uh, ultimately flow that you're trying to develop here. Yeah. Okay. So first... There's a bin, new kind of bin for your kitchen, about two feet tall. It's white, pretty, 
You can see a picture of it at mill.com. It's been described as svelte. Oh, um, and effectively what this bin does is it eats everything you don't eat. And as I mentioned before, what it does it, at night, it effectively grinds it up and dries it out. So if I'm thinking about it, like if I do a good job of household recycling, presumably, I'm, you know, my trash can doesn't have aluminum or paper or cardboard in it that goes in my recycling bin. And so, you know, really what is actually going in my trash can today, for the most part, it's food. And what you're saying is this is going to sit alongside your trash can, separate from your trash can, just as your recycling bin does. Yes. And it's a separate receptacle for your food. And this bin is a bottomless pit. I cannot explain to you how rad it is. You fill it up. And again, the magic trick is we're taking the water out of it. But you fill it up and you come back the next morning and it is empty again. Not because someone has magically emptied it, but because the material has shrunk down. So it is a bin that for me and Rachel, it takes us about a month to fill it up. And we cook at home a lot. So it basically chews and grinds and dries up your food. And it makes it into this like smallified material called food grounds. Do you have to separate? Like, can I throw bones in there? Anything. Can I throw Meat, anything? Dairy, avocado pits. Because it doesn't rot because it's drying it out. So you're not going to deal with stinky, rotty stuff. And there are paddles in there that sort of move. It's not a blender. The paddles in there move at about one RPM at night. And they can exert thousands of pounds of force. So for us, let's go back to Nest, right? The theory of change there is we have to make it easy to do the right thing. Cody, I wish you had a bin so you could talk about it because, you know, okay, I'm the founder of the company. Maybe I'm theoretically biased, but like um, I had, we had a prototype bin at my house and, and we, I wanted to lend it to a new hire at the company. So we parted ways. And again, Rachel, my fiance, like really reasonable person, really thoughtful person was like, when does it come back? You miss it because all of a sudden your trash isn't gross anymore. You know, and Cody, where, Cody, where do you live? I live in L.A. You know, I've got a house of household of four. And your food is going into the trash can right now. Trash or the garbage disposal. Yeah. But, you know, depending on what it is. But I, you know, I'm taking a full bag of garbage out to my garbage bin probably once a day, roughly. Right. So and like you're, you know, we're just getting to know each other. But you're theoretically like a well-meaning person that wants to do the right thing for climate change. And and you're putting food in the trash can that is turning into methane. And for us, it's like this is solvable. And the way we want to solve it is by making it better than that experience you have. Not, not actually relying on altruism here. Not relying on, oh, I feel guilty about food going to the landfill. But just like, no, it makes a lot more sense. And the reason it makes sense is because I hope you get a bin soon and you can, you can fact check me on this. But when you get the food out of the trash, first of all, your trash doesn't stink anymore. Second of all, there's no drippy stuff. Third of all, it doesn't need to get emptied out as quickly. Fourth of all, often you can save money on your waste collection bill because most municipalities have what's called a pay-as-you-throw waste collection scheme. So if you're putting less on the curb every week, your, your bill goes down. And then fourthly, or maybe fifthly, I don't know where I'm at, it does feel good in like the opposite way that it feels to throw a glass bottle into a trash can. It's like, there, there, it's almost like there's something hardwired into us. Kids love it. And they get it. Food is good. Food is delicious. It's kind of weird when you think about it. You're just eating dinner, and there's a little piece of something on your plate that you don't finish. A minute ago, it was delicious. And then you put the plate into the sink, and then it's like transformed into waste. And so then you have this uh, sort of food grounds. You said it takes you know, roughly a month uh, on your end. That's for us in a household of two, but like three three weeks-ish, I think is a good target. And so then what happens? So we have a deal with the U.S. Postal Service, which by the way, like the people you meet on your journey, you know, I did, I did not think I would get to know the great folks at the U.S. Postal Service, but effectively, you know, we're thinking about, okay, how do we get this material back? And it's a shoebox worth of food. 
And you think about it, and there's a mail carrier that's at 99% of American households' addresses every day, and they're often dropping off a lot more than they're picking up. And the trucks are already on the road. So we effectively hitch a ride with the U.S. Postal Service, which I think someone from USPS just yesterday told us they described themselves as like the world's largest carpooling service, which I loved. So you just, you, you put it next to your mailbox or, you know, wherever. Yeah, you just put it out front. Uh, the, you know, we give you a, you know, the, the membership comes with, you know, boxes, you know, and they kind of origami up, they pop up, they're already labeled. There's it's like the old Netflix DVD package. Right. <laughs> sort of. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, but that, for, that is, I'm definitely dating myself with that. Yeah. Reference. <laughs> but for food, Cody. <laughs> so you get that. And, and then you, you know, it's a couple taps in, in an app that says, Hey, I'm, I'm putting a box out and it says, cool. USPS will pick it up tomorrow. And then that gets picked up and brought back to us where we do some sifting and sorting and testing. And then what we're working towards is what comes out the other end of that process is this amazing, nutritious and delicious ingredient for animal feed. And so then do you sell that to animal feed companies or do you process the animal feed or that's part of what you're still figuring out as you as you build? I mean, the business has only been live for a, a short while now. So, yeah. So the, the, the target is is chickens uh, and eggs specifically and something that factored into that decision. OK, can I do like a crazy stat sidebar, please? One third of the arable land on the planet is used to grow food for animals. One third of the grain we grow on the planet is for animal feed. Bonkers. You know, it's, it's, it's crazy. There's 27 billion chickens on earth, you know, at this moment. I, I didn't count, but I just have a feeling. And they're hungry. And there's a lot of fertilizer and water and land that goes into growing the protein that they eat. And meanwhile, we're sending 50 million tons of it to the landfill every year. So that didn't really make sense. So you're sort of rerouting. And, and it's not food waste. It's just still food to these chickens. And where we're at right now is, yeah, we're going through the scientific and regulatory process to make this happen. But yes, we will sell this material to farms. And then that money goes to effectively offset costs to allow us to deliver the membership at the, at the rate we deliver it at. Have some kind of, uh, I don't know, is it FDA approval for, for animal feed? I don't know what the, what the sort of regulatory approval chain looks like there. Yeah, no, there, we've been working super closely with FDA and USDA, and there's a, um, an organization called AFCO, the American Association of Feed Control Officers, and the reception has been great and the collaboration has been great. But we, you know, we have a ton of respect for the regulatory process, so we're working really closely with those bodies to... Yeah, make sure that we can bring this to market in, in the right way. And so today, consumers, I think, don't have to purchase the, the bin. They're buying a subscription uh, that covers the cost of the bin and the pickup. Is that correct? Yeah, it's a membership that comes with hardware where the hardware is included and free. You know, a, a question uh, folks asked us, we, you know, we said it's about a dollar a day. And people said like, OK, but what do I have to pay for the bin? And we said, no, no, no it's, it's in there. It's all included. And the reason we did it this way, there's a couple of reasons. One, there, there's a bunch of stuff that comes with the membership. There's the bin. There, there's an odor management system in, in the bin that, you know, needs to get refreshed about once every six months. It's a new, uh, it's a, a coconut coir filter that has just in, in like a square mile of surface area inside of it. It's about the size of a six pack, but if you were to actually trace all the surface area inside the little pieces of coconut quark, there's a square mile in there. There's the send back pathway. So all the mail back to um, the farms and then things like warranty, lifetime support, everything. And if you think about it, the hardware is part of it and it is insanely delightful. But the real star of the show is the food. You know, and for us, we wanted to make sure we're building that full loop. I actually think something that's kind of cool about the business model from a sustainability perspective is when you're in the business of selling hardware, let's say I was running the e-commerce business at 
at a hardware company. You know, somebody comes to you and says, great job, Harry. You hit your number this year. Next year, please sell 30% more. You go, okay. But spiritually, you, you kind of get into a mode where you just want to sell more stuff. You know, and make new versions that are better and then, uh, you know, obsolete old ones and people buy more and more and more and more. And then that stuff ends up in the landfill. But in this model, we actually own the bin. So it's interesting to think about we mill. So it's actually interesting to think about what that does from an incentive standpoint. Makes us want to make something that's going to last as long as possible. That's modular. That's repairable. You know, it's this piece of distributed infrastructure that we want we are incentivized to keep running as long as possible. And that's really in line with the principles of the circular economy. So that's a kind of a co-benefit of the business model we're in as well. And if you are able to successfully reduce the amount of food waste that's going to these landfills, what does that do to the business models of the waste management companies themselves? Are they all of a sudden scratching their heads thinking, like, wait, what happened to our customer base here? Um, not that that's a bad thing, but I'm curious like, to think about the macro after effects that could happen you know, as Mill gains traction. Nobody is in the business of wanting resources to go to waste. Everybody that is involved in materials management wants materials to go to their highest and best use. You know, when we talk to municipalities, same page. Like, we all want to figure out if we have a resource, how can we do the very best thing with it? And, you know, I think as we move towards distributed infrastructure, it can unlock new opportunities and new pathways for materials. Because what we're effectively talking about, you could look at the energy industry, right? There's been a transition there over the last 50 years from all you had were centralized facilities. And now we have wind, solar, batteries, thermostats on the wall. They open new opportunities for grid management, for generation, for storage. And I think distribution and materials management is exciting because what we're effectively doing in the house is taking the water out, which Cody means like no more stinky trash for you and fewer trips to the curb and, you know, savings and like all the good things there. I mean, seriously, you know, nuclear fusion hard. I also think getting rid of fruit flies, hard. I don't think those are the same level of technical difficulty, but fruit flies are hard to get rid of, and, and we've done it. But I think when, when you unlock that distributed infrastructure, it opens new doors and new opportunities. I mean, it's interesting. We're moving something that previously would have been moved in a garbage truck, in a mail truck. You know, it's still moving, but it's moving without water. And there's a new pathway that can get to a farm. It's just been met with a lot of excitement because folks have been thinking about ways to drive innovation. And we're really coming at this starting from the kitchen out versus the curbside in. Yeah, I think the the decentralized distributed systems nature of what you mentioned certainly is in almost all forms of technology where sort of technological innovation tends to shine, to be able to push things out to potentially more complicated logistics networks, but ones that technology is able to manage. The other kind of two big impacts that that I see are one, and, and I feel like this is something that you also probably all learned at Nest, is you're building something for consumers at the point of heavy consumer interaction in the household. Um, you know, you're, you're managing your thermostat on a daily basis for the most part, or historically were. Nest, with Nest, you don't have to do that quite as much. Um, and, you know, same with Mill, like you're obviously managing what you eat in the house on a multi-times-a-day basis. Um, we had a, a good MCJ episode a couple weeks ago with Sam D'Amico from Impulse, who's building, you know, induction stoves. And we were talking about the ga big gas stove sort of controversy that that has become a culture war. And his, his point of view was, yeah, that's because it's the only interface in the house where you actually engage with gas with your eyes. Um, and uh, which I thought was an amazing point. And I think you're, you're kind of tackling that head on with Mill as well. This is where you engage with waste in your house on a very regular basis uh, for things that shouldn't be waste, as you've pointed out many times. 
And then the third question I would ask, not question, the others weren't questions. The, the, the question I would ask is in climate tech, there is this constant sort of, to some extent, theoretical debate of systems change versus personal responsibility. And you all are at the center of that in terms of, you know, what you're building. And I'm curious to hear your theory of change in that regard. Oh, I love it. I'm going to use an analogy I've never used before, but we're going to use an analogy of a sushi roll because that's just what came to mind because we're talking about food and maybe it's approaching lunchtime. This is a systems change company. That is the core of the role, but it is wrapped in a layer, in a, in a delicious seaweed layer of individual action. And I think the way we think about it is... Collective action is what can drive systems change. So you, what we're not talking about here is a disconnected set of individuals that are partaking in an individual action on their own. What we're talking about is a network of individuals that together can come together collectively to carve out a new pathway for a new system. And at the heart of changing behavior, you have to make it frictionless and delightful. You know, I think about AirPods, which I just threw a set through the washing machine the other day, you know, and they're drying out. But, but it's like, if you had asked me, Harry, do you need AirPods? And I don't think I need them, but would you, would you, are you going to love AirPods as much as you love them today? When I first saw them come out, I would have said, I don't know. But whether it's the satisfying clicky clack of the lid, the way that they pair perfectly when they go in your ears, the fit, the ease, the battery life, the form factor of the case in my pocket, it's just better. So our theory of change is if we're going to make something that is going to be adopted, that is going to scale to the level that it's going to change systems, it has to be frictionless. It has to be totally delightful. We stress out about how the foot pedal on this bin feels. And I won't say we're at the clicky clack level of an AirPod case necessarily, because that's some of the most satisfying clicky clack stuff out there. But I think some would say we're close. You know, we think about the capacity. You ask the question, do you have to think about what you put in there? No, any food can go. Okay, yeah. Can you fill it to the top with Starburst? You know, I can tell you what's going to happen there, but like who throws away Starburst? So that's what drives it. I'll just say one other thing, though. There's the experience, but then there's also the information. So to talk about Nest, there are kind of two sides to that energy saving coin. When we talk about 100 billion kilowatt hours, a chunk of that saved from the thermostat programming itself. And, you know, it's you you know, you go, you live in Florida and you go on vacation for the weekend. And, you know, we, we saw this. People would write in, oh, my God, we, we left the AC on and we were going to be gone for two weeks. And normally that would have cost us hundreds of dollars. And you know what? It just it shut the AC off. And thank you. Like best investment ever. Three day ROI. But there was another side of it at Nest where we would send an energy report to people and say, hey, did you know that, you know, your runtime was X last month compared to your neighbors? Or, hey, if you tuned this set point by a couple degrees differently, you know, you could save X percent. And we see this with companies like Opower, or you get your water bill, you know, and it says, hey, do you know, you use 38% more water than your neighbors. And you're like, damn them. <laughs> they've, they've got me again. And, and I think there's a similar opportunity for us at Mill, where I just had no idea how much food I was throwing away, you know, in the trash, because that's what we were doing previously, because it was more convenient. And I mean, we would try to compost, you know, and but we would fall off the wagon sometimes, I'd say. And the fruit flies got us on the compost side, I have to admit. We tried. And like we had good run, there were good runs, you know, but then, yeah, we'd, we'd fall back. And it's really interesting when the app we have presents data, it says, hey, do you know how many pounds of food you put into the bin, you know, every day last week? And like, you become more aware of it. 
So there's the frictionlessness of the experience, but then there's also this kind of now this thing is measured. And if something isn't measured, it's unlikely to move. And food's expensive. Yeah. So the data is going to help people, consumers also presumably make better choices in the future once they start, you know, you can't, you can't, you can't change what you can't measure. Right. So once you start measuring it, you, you can also change. And there's like different awareness to it. Big fan of big fan of Persian cucumbers over here. You know, the little, little cucumbers, but and infuriatingly when you get them at um, Trader Joe's, they come in like a little plastic bag. But, you know, we started noticing that like we were buying too many of those. You know, they're going slimy and kind of weird. And then what that now what now, a, go ahead. <laughs> I was gonna say what a cool product feature I'm already envisioning in the future where somehow with some kind of sensor in the bin someday you could actually tell me what I'm most frequently throwing away. Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure. Yeah. I'll, I'm going to put that one in the queue. You know, I'm not, yeah, but, I, <laughs> but no, I, th- I think there, I think there are ways and there's also other cool apps and things out there that help you scan your fridge and make lists and understand. I think for now though, it's like, it does really bring awareness and that's just money in the bank when we're realizing the types of things that we're buying that are just not getting eaten. What have you learned from consumers so far? You know, you've only been live for a, a couple of weeks, uh, you know, as of the time we're recording this. What have you learned so far about propensity to pay? Because I think the other, you know, we talked about personal responsibility and systems change. I think the other sort of big debate in climate circles is like, are consumers willing to pay a quote unquote green premium for something? Um, are they willing to open their wallet for climate change? And, you know, I'm, I'm going to anticipate you're going to say, hey, some people will open their wallet for climate change. Some people will open their wallet for less stinky food. But I'm curious what, you, what you've learned thus far. So these are learnings that carry over from Nest. But we are not counting on altruism here. Just to be clear, like people are signing up, you know, at significant levels at great velocity. So, you know, we're on, we're on the path to sell out for this year based on our planned build, which is exciting. I think it all it all has to be rationalizable. You know, it all has to make sense. And something I'm heartened by is actually we're seeing really great traction before we've actually shipped our first bins out. And they're shipping soon, you know, early spring. I don't know when exactly this is going to air, but they may be out in the wild, you know, when we air. But in a way, it's still kind of vaporware to folks. And... I'm really excited. No one's had the clicky clack experience. No one's had yet. the clicky clack experience <laughs> or the bottomless pit experience or the no stink experience or the save money on my bills experience. And I'm really excited for that kind of testimonial to get out there because I think similar, like if we think about an AirPod case before anybody's tried it or a Nest thermostat before anybody's experienced it, like objectively, you know, someone's testimonial of saying, wait, this is insanely awesome, really makes a big difference. And what key assumptions do you feel like you need to prove next? You know, you all are very experienced company builders. You know, the best builders always know what they don't know. Uh, what, what, are you, what are you trying to learn next? I think something that will be out in the wild, um, you know, because we're announcing the partnership shortly is, you know, how our collaboration with municipalities clocks forward. Next week, we're announcing, again, I don't know if that's, I don't know, you know, whatever the date is in relation, but shortly we're announcing a partnership with the city of Tacoma, Washington. And I, you know, it's just been an amazing collaboration, public-private partnership with that municipality. You know, and they're thinking about how can we keep more food out of the landfill? And Tacoma is just such a leader in sustainability. They actually have an amazing um, program called Tagro, where it's short for Tacoma Grows, where the uh, the biosolids, so the stuff that goes down your toilet, goes uh, to an anaerobic digestion facility to get the energy out. But then they take that residual material and blend it with other types of materials, call it proprietary blend, and they make an incredible soil amendment that can be land applied and sells out every year. So they're really, really thoughtful about keeping nutrients in the food system, in the soil cycle. And what's cool is in Tacoma, 
they have a pay as you throw rate structure effectively, which I think in Tacoma, the uh, the savings, if you were to step down from a 64 gallon cart on the curb to a 32 gallon cart on the curb, you can save something like $26, $27 a month. And something we don't know is. Well, so that's like a net, you know, basically net swap. If people are subscribed to mill, it's almost makes the mill subscription free and better kitchen experience. Yeah. That's like kind of a new frontier. I feel like we're getting good signal right now in terms of, Hey, when we, uh, educate folks, albeit without any testimonial, you know, people are excited about this. And with technology, you're always going to move through a technology adoption curve. And, you know, it starts with the early adopters who are kind of, you know, these are the people that were buying a Tesla before, before, like, you could charge the Tesla reliably or before the brakes worked reliably or whatever that is. And, you know, then there are people that are going to wait until the price and capacity and you know, ability to drive from LA to San Francisco unimpeded is all figured out with supercharger stations, et cetera. So I think naturally, right out the gate, we're talking to early adopters. And I do think it's an ensemble of reasons to buy. Either it's a pack of militant raccoons that have been, you know, you know, wreaking havoc in an alleyway, or a dislike for stinky trash or dollar savings on a bill, you know, or, or yeah, it mixed into that. Someone who says, no, I'm, I'm quite committed to taking action at home. And this is a pretty cool way to abate methane emissions from your kitchen. Where do you need help next? What, what are the, you know, you mentioned uh, municipal partnerships that you're working on. You've mentioned, you know, the talent you've needed to bring into the team. Where, where are you looking for help? I think we're, all, we're always looking for great people to join the team. And shout out to the MCJ community for being part of our community. I don't want to forget anyone, but John McBride, who effectively leads growth at the company, Hannah Brown, who leads social and community at the company, you know, part of the MCJ community and and just like incredibly talented folks that are making a huge impact at the company. So I think, you know, we're always on the lookout for, for the best people. As we think about scaling this business, there's so much we can continue to learn. And our attitude from the jump has been that we are not experts in organics. We are not experts in food systems. We're not experts in materials management. So it's just so fun when emails come across or pings come in from people that have tons of experience in these areas that have spent years, decades working on this and can help educate us. And, and that's folks who are familiar with the scientific side, who are folks who are familiar with communities who have been impacted by, you know, hey, hey, you know, we're, we're looking to have more regenerative circular loops in our community. We're looking, you know, to, to abate soil erosion, you name it. So I, I think we're kind of all ears and open to learn in a bunch of different ways. One other question just for the entrepreneurs who are listening. You all made a conscious choice to build in stealth for a decent amount of time, um, well over a year. Um, what are the pros and cons? Pro, we did not know everything we know now when we started. And the idea evolved over time. So being in stealth allows you to get more clever, to realize that your additional your initial idea might not have been the best idea, and evolve that without sort of whiplash on message. It also enabled us to engage really closely with a bunch of stakeholders and make sure we were integrating a whole bunch of considerations into what we we're doing, whether it was from an emissions perspective or messaging perspective or tuning, tuning the service in the right way. Con, it's harder in stealth. You know, you, you, can't, you can't recruit as easily because you can't really say what you're working on. It's harder to forge partnerships because there's not a website someone can look to that explains everything. You are waiting longer for customer feedback and reaction, which is incredibly valuable. Pro, you know, when you are ready to announce, you really feel good about what you're saying 
And for us, we wanted to have as much of a splash as we could when we came out. And pro, we waited long enough to announce that the folks that are signing up aren't going to have to wait long to get their bin. Although, as I said, like we're kind of on the path to selling out. So once we sell out, then there will be some wait. But it is fun to operate a business. You know, and there are muscles inside your organization, tendons, ligaments that are operational muscles. And the longer you can have them working, the better to work out any kinks in, oh, we're, you know, we're, we're not communicating as optimally in this way, or this is some way we need to uh, evolve this process or whoopsie, this piece of SaaS is costing way more than we thought, something like that. And, and you sort of delay that feedback loop from an operational perspective, but all in all, um, I'm happy with the way we did it. I, I think it was wor- worth it. And I think also, you know, you, you all have track record with, you know, your experience and Matt's experience at Nest. You know, that allowed you to raise capital, you know, a, a few rounds of capital from top, top tier climate investors uh, before you'd launched anything or even announced the company. And, and, you know, I think many entrepreneurs probably can't do that. Uh, so, you know, you all have that built in advantage to some extent there, too. You know, on that note, though, it also creates, I would assume, a little bit of pressure that, you know, you've now are effectively a fairly mature company from a financing and cap table perspective, but your business is essentially starting now. Uh, so you have, you have a lot of ground to cover, uh, uh, you know, to continue the the sort of finance momentum of the business. How, how do you all think about that? I mean, look, hardware is hard in that way, right? It's more expensive upfront to do it. And you are necessarily going to need to raise capital in advance of deploying at scale, if deploying at some semblance of scale is what you desire to do at the gate. I think, yeah, we're really, you know, in a privileged and fortunate position to have come from the backgrounds that we come from and have the team that we have around us, which I think de-risks the hardware work. I think something that was differentiating for us as well is there's not that much stuff in climate land that is something that you can take part in at home that has such value and ease. Also, along the way, we're building prototypes, experiences, demos where investors, prospective employees can experience it. Now, you know, maybe you're experiencing it and seeing the first version of it that's like as big as a desk, you know, and it's a subsystems prototype, but you can imagine it. So it's not like folks are investing blind, you know, and along the way we're building partnerships, you know, forging inroads with municipalities, et cetera, that it, that is giving feedback and signal on that. It's kind of different, but it's not that different from some of the other kinds of climate technology we're looking at. You know, because I think if you look at other companies that are inspiring to us, you know, take Form Energy or something like that, right? Or, or the, you know, companies like Brimstone that are, you know, your initial run is effectively to demonstrate that the technology works. And then you need to scale that up over time with additional capital to get to a scale where you can have meaningful impact on systems. So... We did some of that internally, you know, proving out, you know, hey, we can get food from 80% moisture to 13% moisture overnight reliably. We figured out a good way to move it around with the U.S. Postal Service. We've done the nutritional testing and are making progress on regs to feel like this pathway makes sense. But yeah, there's there's definitely risk in it. You know, I'm not... this is this is not the least complex startup we could have built, but we're going for it. Well, I have to say, you know, as a firm that's been there with you since close to the beginning, you know, we've we've been honored at MCJ Collective to be able to participate um, in in multiple rounds that you've raised along the way, and the the way you worked with investors while you were in stealth was exactly what you're talking about: being able to share milestones, be able to show you know, the evolution of the product. Um, but boy, it sure is nice to be able to talk about the fact that you're uh, you're out there now. <laughs> feels so good, you know? And like people are buying it that aren't my mom. You know, it's it's really, um, it's, it's really affirming. I mean, there's a ton of education 
You know, it's a new concept. We published a life cycle analysis on the website. You know, we've done our homework. It takes time. And I would say, you know, to entrepreneurs out there, we, you know, you want to look for investors that are going to be patient and thoughtful if you're going to be getting into a business that is going to be a long-term bet. And mission alignment really helps there. You know, because I think, uh, you know, speaking for our investors, I think they want to deliver healthy returns to their LPs, but they're also looking to deliver healthy returns to the planet. And it helps to have that double alignment. Well, Harry, any big picture comments you want to share on what's next, what you're excited about? You've given us a few nuggets of, of things to expect, but anything else that uh, that you're particularly looking forward to, you know, as as Mill continues to grow, you know, even if it's a five year, 10 year vision of where you think this is going to go, um, just a, a, any anything else you want to leave us with would be awesome. I think if there are any listeners who have already signed up or are thinking about signing up, you know, thank you for welcoming us into your home. And and what our promise to you is, is we're always going to be thinking about ways that we can get better from an experience perspective, thinking about ways where we can deliver more value into this membership and thinking about ways that we can keep getting food back into the food system effectively. And I think long-term I am really excited about what a focus on awesome experiences and this platform of distributed infrastructure can do to the flow of materials on the planet. And as I have kind of developed my perspective on systems change, what we're looking to do is build more efficient systems. And the things that make any system inefficient are waste. So by being a waste prevention company, what we're really saying is we're a more efficient systems company, you know, and that all feels really in line with decarbonizing the planet, not leading with, hey, this is impact or this is green or this is what we should be doing, but that this is just a better way that makes sense, both experientially, economically, environmentally. Well, Harry... At MCJ Collective, we're super proud to have you in the portfolio. We're super proud to have you and Matt and many others of your team in the MCJ member community and really grateful for you to come on today and spend this much time with us uh, outlining what you're building and, and what we should all expect to come. So thank you. Oh, this is super fun. And I am in the MCJ Slack. So if there are, you know, Harry Tannenbaum, T-A-N-N-E-N-B-A-U-M, you know, feel free to... Slack me thoughts, ideas, you know, um, uh, you know, I'm over there and, and would, would love pings, but I'm, I'm proud to be part of this community and, and uh, I'm wonderful to be on the show. Thank you, Harry. Thanks again for joining us on the My Climate Journey podcast. At MCJ Collective, we're all about powering collective innovation for climate solutions by breaking down silos and unleashing problem-solving capacity. To do this, we focus on three main pillars, content, like this podcast and our weekly newsletter, capital to fund companies that are working to address climate change, and our member community to bring people together, as Yen described earlier. If you'd like to learn more about MCJ Collective, visit us at www.mcjcollective.com. And if you have guest suggestions, feel free to let us know on Twitter at MCJPod. Thanks, and see you next episode.